and I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Bromance, the podcast about beer and the occult and other things esoteric and weird. My name is Eric Arneson, and I will be your host today. So some of you have been asking about uh, ways to support My Alchemical Bromance, and you can support it through the Arnomancy Patreon. Uh, Patreon is a website where you can... um, basically become like a micro supporter of the arts a micro patron and join up with other people to support um, blogs and artwork and podcasts and and things like that that you enjoy um and i'm running my patreon account through the arnomancy campaign so you can uh, i'll have a link in the show notes and a link on the my alchemical bromance website and you can go check that out so after the interview in this episode you should definitely stick around because i've got a sample of music from my little brother's new um album he's a musician and it's uh, he's nick arneson and his new album that came out on august 17th is called midlife crisis and it's pretty amazing like he has been spending a lot of time learning about um audio engineering and audio stuff and he's sort of the one that that got me really interested in, in audio engineering. I'm nowhere near as good as he is, but I'm, I'm trying to learn that stuff. And in fact, he even gave me the microphone that I'm recording this on. So when he released his album, I told him, Nick, if you get me, you know, if you make me a spot, like a little radio spot, I'll stick it in the podcast. And, and then all two dozen people that listen to the podcast will learn about your album. And I've been bugging him and bugging him, but he hasn't gotten me anything. But the other day when I was over at his house... I surreptitiously recorded him playing a goofy song for his kids uh, called Anus, and um, it's pretty hilarious. You should definitely stick around and listen to it, and while you're listening to it, go to nickarnesonmusic.com and check out the rest of his album. All right, now, on to the real reason you're here, which is to listen to me interview Scott Gosnell. Now... If you've been a fan of My Alchemical Bromance for a while, you'll remember Scott Gosnell in episode 18 and how friggin' excited I was to have him on. Scott is... I don't know that I would necessarily consider Scott as part of the esoteric community because he never really strikes me as somebody who thinks of himself as an occultist. But he is the one who has been translating so much of Giordano Bruno's work and bringing it to the world uh, in English. And he's also... Um, been running his own podcast called Startup Geometry, and part of that has been him finding people who are enlightened and interviewing them about enlightenment, which is really, really fascinating, and has completely changed my view on it. So this is his second appearance on the podcast, and we talk a little bit about Bruno, but mostly we really dig into some of the other stuff that that Scott's interested in, and it gets really fascinating. Uh, We talk about uh, his work figuring out what enlightenment is. We talk about free will. We talk about meditation. We talk about machine learning. We talk about, oh geez, there's just, we talk about the power of the imagination, uh, the default network, hallucinogens. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff. So sit back, pour yourself a beer, uh, prepare to just have your mind blown by Scott and enjoy
found the messages that we exchanged before your first uh, appearance on the podcast, and you said that I should ask you about Jung and active imagination and Jodorowsky's psycho magic. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, but you know, we d- we don't necessarily have to adhere to that. Well, um, I'm kind of like- just kind of start rambling, I guess, okay. and and we can on from there. But for, uh, like, uh, tell me what you've been up to first. Oh, man. Well, you know, I mean, I've been doing a lot of stuff with the podcast. Uh, I've been talking to some pretty interesting people. Um, and then, um, well, you know, the last time we talked, I think I'd been, I'd been really getting into Bruno and actually sort of using some of Bruno's techniques. Um, and okay. probably the, the most effective technique of his that i found was uh in uh, what's the what's the book where he lists the uh, the 30 gates right where he has all the different 30 seals 30 seals so one of those seals one of the early ones is like the field or something like that and i used one of those to um to aid tarot readings so i i just sort of encode tarot decks into one of Bruno's memory structures and use it to like remember meanings and connections between the cards. Uh, And it, that works really well, surprisingly well, well enough that I can like pick up a new tarot deck and use it without any problem. And sort of the images of the base tarot deck that I use, which is like Rider Waite, um, help me remember what the meanings for each individual card are. Uh, And that was really surprising. I was really happy that it worked well and i didn't realize that i was already kind of doing something like that which i've discovered over and over again with the art of memory stuff like we we you know you you hear all the like the anecdotes of like professors who remember their their lectures by you know placing objects around their offices or whatever but i think um it's sort of a testament to to sort of the the ingenuity of some of those art of memory people is that they were like, Oh, this is how people are already memorizing things. Let's turn it into a system so we can exploit it better. So we could teach it and all that kind of stuff. So that was pretty neat. And then another thing I did. So, you know, in, uh, in Deumbris Idearum, um, Bruno wrote that mnemonic poem for remembering the Zodiac. Yep. So I wrote one for remembering the Zodiacal houses. Uh, so it was basically, you know, just ripping off Bruno, (laughs) but that was pretty cool. Yeah, good. Uh, yeah. He he certainly wouldn't mind that. Um, now, how did you structure the cards within the field so that you m- remember them effectively? So all I did is I used the um, the minor arcana, which for me mm-hmm. are most difficult to remember, um, and I kind of just created a grid. So. Uh, along the numerical axis, I created sort of a story that's broken up into 10 different parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then along the suit axis, uh, I created a sort of a paradigm for each suit so that the intersection between that uh, paradigm isn't the right word, but sort of like a, it's a category. So each suit sort of deals with a different set of life circumstances or a a different set of like elements in your life. And for that, I just used the elemental attributions um, and assigned them to, you know, like the different levels of the soul, according to uh, like Kabbalah. 
So mm-hmm. that so that way I would have like a soul level and part of a story and then at the intersections the cards would reveal what their meanings were. Um, and then in addition, uh, you know, specific cards also have sort of like just additional nuances or meaning. And that I don't know is really encoded in the memory structure that I made. It's more of just experience. Like I just remember it. So, right. You get that level once you've dug into a particular card or once you're at the image of a particular card. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So that's all, that's all associative memory type stuff, mm-hmm. which is, you know, traditional, the usefulness of uh, the memory palace technique goes up when you use it in combination or in sensitivity to other learning techniques. Mm-hmm. So like the, the standard paradigm of some people are visual learners, some people are auditory learners, some are tactile learners. So like using those techniques to build associations around particular pieces of information, mm-hmm. right? And then using the memory palace stuff to mirror the structure of the information that you want to remember. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you adjust, like last time, I think we talked about, you know, if you have a book with 10 chapters, you might create a building with 10 floors on it mm-hmm. and each floor gets its own chapter so that the structure of the thing to be remembered mirrors the structure that you build to remember it. Right, right. Right. And so, you know, it's kind of a quick and handy way, just like, um, you know, Shakespearean uh, dialogue is all done in iambic pentameter. So you kind of know, you you know how many syllables are going to be in each line, you know, when there's going to be rhyme, when there isn't going to be, it's mostly blank verse. But you kind of have that, that structure to go on, that gives you that first little like hint that you're on the right track. That's interesting. Right. Have you have you talked to um, to many actors um, who who memorize stuff quickly or have to memorize a lot of text and asked how they do it? Yeah, I mean, most of them do it by associating the particular like the particular beats of what they're talking about mm-hmm. with an emotion or with a um, with a movement or you know. So some of it is just rote memorization, but some of it is also doing that kind of in-depth association. So the more you associate a piece of information with other pieces of information, the easier it is to remember, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, that's why if you go to a parking garage now, they say, you know, this is the this is the blue level, level number three. This is arts and crafts, and this is the giraffe level, right? <laughs> so they let you pick what your particular, right, how you're going to remember where your particular car is. So you may be a a person who really likes it to, you know, remember colors. So you remember, oh, it's the blue level, Mm -hmm. right? You may be like an animal person and you say, oh, giraffe. It's I'm on giraffe level, Mm -hmm. right? And so there are lots of points of entry for you, right? And once you have one of them, you go, oh, it's level three, it's the blue giraffe level. Like, all of it comes as a piece, mm-hmm. right? Once you've been prompted with something that, you're, that your mind is hooked onto. So in the same way, you know, even when you're not using, like, formal memory palace techniques, you're using, you know, the best learning and memory psychology of the modern day, mm-hmm. right, to say, okay, what is the thing that's kind of at the top of the list? If I can get the first word of the quote that I'm looking for, or if I can get, you know, an idea of who said something, Mm -hmm. right? 
is there something that reminds me of the thing? And then you recognize what the thing is that you're looking for, and you can generally spit out the rest of it. Right, right. Like if I say, you know, four score and seven years ago. Our forefathers gave birth upon this land to a great nation or however that goes. <laughs> yeah, so like yeah. you know it's the Gettysburg Address, you know mm -hmm. Lincoln. And, and so the rest of it flows from that first first piece, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, if, uh, if I start humming the first bars of uh, an Aretha Franklin song, Aretha just died this morning. Oh, yeah. Um, but, like, you'll instantly be not only able to remember what the rest of that song is, but you'll also remember everything you know about Aretha Franklin. You'll remember seeing her in the Blues Brothers movie. You'll write, so you have this chain of associations that will flow off of whatever your entry point was. Yeah. yeah. Because you as a, as a human being tend to remember things in sequences. You remember things uh, that are associated with other things. Right? So the smell of the of, of your mother's cooking mm -hmm. right will instantly take you back if there was a dish that, you know your mother or grandmother fixed it will instantly take you back and you'll remember other things about your childhood right if you like you know like proust with the madeleine right you taste that and you go oh you know i remember being a kid and then you'll have a thousand page digression on that <laughs> right i'm getting that interference on your sound again oh i'm sorry it's okay I it, I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> um, so oh yeah, that Proust thing. Uh, I think doesn't Gary Gary Lockman talks about that in his book. Oh geez, I've only read the one. Lost Knowledge of the Imagination. No, I haven't read that one yet. Have you read that yet? Oh okay, yeah yeah, I I had him on for that as well. So oh, that's right. I listened to uh, that interview. That was an interesting one. Um. And that's funny because, like, that topic of the imagination and its loss, like, that's something that's kind of, you know, it's been talked about a lot. You know, I mean, the first place I ran into it was Yuan uh, uh, Culliano in Eros and Magic and the Renaissance. But, right, right. But, uh, but even then, like, there were echoes of, um, who was the socialist? Max Weber. When oh, Max sociologist, yeah. Yeah. Well, he was not a socialist, but a sociologist. Kind of a socialist, also, but yeah, sociologist. <laughs> so in his uh, in his book, um, whose name I totally can't remember, where he talks about sort of like the effect of the Protestant Reformation, like the whole theme in this is sort of like that the Protestant Reformation it might have done some good things, but it also did some bad things, which is sort of similar in, with, with every big change in history. But as a product of the Protestant Reformation, our society really likes to focus on the great stuff it did. Well, right. well, forgetting that we lost some really important techniques or some really important sort of like cultural things that went on along with that. Um, but yeah, I remember in, uh, I think it was in his, uh, the secret or the, the quest for Hermes Trismegistus. So okay, one yeah. of Lockman's other books, he, yeah. he brought up that, that, uh, Proust example of the, the cookie taking him back and having like the, the experience of, uh, I can't remember the context it was, but it was some some something along the lines of um, a sort of like trans conscience or, a, or a, a an experience outside of time where your consciousness and your memory have some sort of link outside of time that allow you to be transported fully into an experience that uh, 
that is otherwise completely lost to your memory. Yes. Um, I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. And the, but when you're talking about sort of like the links or the associations between memories where you have like, you know, you can hum the, the few bars of a song that I might not have heard since childhood. And somehow that might enable my brain or my mind to connect to that whole chain of memory that includes that song or like where I heard it or, you know, which Volkswagen I was sitting in as a child or, or whatever when that, when it happened. Right. Um, yeah, I got, I got into an argument online with some people about the concept of free will. Uh huh. And one of the arguments in favor of free will is that you do have these, uh, displaced in time experiences. So hmm. your decision to do something is affected heavily by the things that you happen to remember that actually happened or may mm -hmm. not have happened and the alternative things that might happen if you do or do not do something, mm -hmm. right? So if you project forward in time so you can anticipate something, yeah. you can anticipate something that would only happen if you did not act. Mm -hmm. You can anticipate something that would never have happened whether or not you acted, but you believe that it would happen, mm -hmm. right? So there are all of these causes of things that have not actually caused anything yet because they have not yet occurred. Right. And yet in your head, they are a source or a cause of your action. So that in itself is one of the arguments for free will and against determinism. Okay. I don't know if it's a good one, though. I don't know if it's a good one either, but it's one of the ones that I'm kind of, that I'm kind of working through. I feel like I feel like there's still a cause you know so you know the you know the the wellspring of the thought that enables you to make these anticipations still has a cause so there's still mm -hmm. like a, there's still a chain of causality that leads to those thoughts and that chain of causality might be able to predict with you know if one knew what those that that link of causes was there still might be an ability to predict with 100% certainty which choice you will take, even if you could anticipate uh, multiple outcomes. Like the anticipation of multiple outcomes doesn't necessarily choose which outcome you're going to take. Or it doesn't give you the ability to choose the outcome you're going to take. Does it? Well, that's the, the, the really good question is, uh, now, can you predict what someone else is going to choose to do with perfect certainty? And the answer is generally no, mm -hmm. right? So that's that's sort of the primary argument against determinism. The you know the secondary area is that uh, you know the difference between situations where you do have a choice of doing different things and ones where you don't, where. More, art, more more alternatives are possible or fewer alternatives are possible, mm -hmm. right? And if there were no free will whatsoever, you probably would not be able to have a sensation that said sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. Sometimes there's choice and sometimes there's not. Well, unless that... Right? And then yeah. the second thing is, is, as I said, if you can have causes of things... You know, cause, things caused by events or caused by 
suppositions that are not actually real, mm-hmm. then it's difficult to say that they were caused by that, rather that they were caused by some thought that you had, which, you know, if you can have the first thought, then you can have a thought that is a decision thought. Hmm. Okay, hold on a second. I think <laughs> it's a complicated topic because I personally, when when I've thought about free will in the past, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I'm not going to be able to figure out if free will exists or not. Uh, so I just fall, I always fall back to this quote from uh, Rabbi Ira Stone, who was writing a book on ethics, or in one of his books on, on ethics, he wrote... Um, you know, you can argue up and down about whether or not you have free will, but mostly you just have to make sure that you act like you do. Because yeah, in that way, that's... you can make good actions and you can, you know, even if it's all predestined, but you don't you don't want to take that choice <laughs> or take that chance. Right. And and nobody does, including the people who believe that there is no such thing as free will and it's all predetermined. Yeah. But... Nobody just wanders around fatalistically all day. Yeah, totally. Well, you know what? There probably are people who do that, and they probably are very depressed. I've never, I've never seen them. Yeah, I guess I haven't either. <laughs> um, okay, but but you you mentioned something. So you were talking about like a thought can be a cause, but if it's a thought about something that isn't real, or if the thought itself is not real, like with the way when you're using the word real in that way, are you talking about like? the material reality of a thought like can like a thought if i don't be... walk out my front door because i'm afraid that the garbage truck will run me over uh-huh. the minute that i do and yet there is no garbage truck and i look out the window and no garbage truck passes mm-hmm. right was i stopped by the garbage truck being there by the threat of the garbage truck or was i stopped by the thought that there might be a garbage truck Right. Even though no garbage truck came and no garbage truck ran me over. You were stopped by an imaginal garbage truck. Yes. An imaginary garbage truck stopped you. A non-real yes. thing stopped you. A non-real thing stopped me. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Okay. So okay, is, that, is that legitimately a, like, is that a physical and proximate cause? Or is that, right? Or is that I... part of my decision-making process only? I don't right? know. I, a free that's... decision-making process, and basically, like my problem is, is that I've always said, like the problem with free will isn't the free part; it's mm-hmm. the will part, mm-hmm. because you don't quite know. You know, there is no like separate faculty in the brain that is will that sort of stands outside of everything else, right? Mm-hmm. But your actions are free, and they are decided. You know quasi-independently of the actual state of affairs. Right, right. You have, like, you have flexibility and there is uncertainty around what you will actually decide to do. Mm-hmm. Right? Unless you have absolute omniscience. Right? On the other end of the spectrum, if you have such a thing as omnipotence, right, then you really do have free will. Right, right. And the truth, right, and so if that's true, then it is impossible in the physical universe to be both omniscient and omnipotent. Because an omniscient person, omniscience takes away free will. Right. 
because you because you would be able to be perfectly predictable and you know what is real and what is not real right and you know the absolute outcome of every single action Oof, yeah <laughs> i don't think i want to be omniscient that that would be a big problem i think <laughs> yeah i think it it would get old really fast Yep, I think if I was uh, omniscient, I would I would want at least some level of uh, omnipotence so that I could you know uh, create an uncertain world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, dang. So then the imaginary garbage truck, like yeah, let's let's explore how imaginary things can affect the real world. Absolutely, because um. There are some obvious ways, like invention, for instance, is something that begins in the imagination and is translated into some sort of physical or material object that can cause quite a disturbance in the world. Mm-hmm. But then there's your imaginary garbage truck. Yes. So. Now, what's also weird, so... Last year, I was I was doing a lot of reading in uh, kind of Vajrayana Buddhist, mm-hmm. uh, the, the higher yoga tantras, highest yoga tantra, and also I've been doing this sort of interview series with people who are enlightened or about enlightenment or different things like that, and uh, so the i originally got into it because of the connection with the with the memory palace mm-hmm. stuff so a lot of the a lot of the visualizations of deities and gurus and dakinis and whatnot mm-hmm. um right i i wanted to see if they were also using things like memory palace techniques and in fact if you look at the uh, the the art the tankas you'll see that the multi-armed deities that are in there are holding specific uh, objects or attributes mm-hmm. which relate back to particular characteristics that that deity is supposed to be reinforcing right right so like you know uh, 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 you know a conch shell or a, you know a, a, a skull cup right. or something like that right and so these each in the eight arms or 16 arms or whatever there are, you know, these are enumerated um, and beneficial uh, lists of things. Mm -hmm. So they work a lot like the seals in the 30 seals book. Or or even like the, uh, the language of like iconography in, in Orthodox Christianity. Yes. Okay. Um, So, yeah, so I went. I went from there, and I started thinking about how just visualizing things could actually transform one mm-hmm. uh, uh, psychologically, or, or actually have real effects. So tying in with our imaginal, uh, our imaginal things. So how does, for example, um, the active imagination techniques that that you had mentioned at the at the beginning with uh, Carl Jung? Right. How does all of that tie in? Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, there is the kind of classic uh, meditational aspect to uh, enlightenment, which comes up through in, in a gradual way through quieting the mind. And what it's looking more and more like is that um, if you think about 
uh, neurological balance. Mm -hmm. It works by mutual inhibition. So they're everywhere in the brain. They're, one area will be trying to suppress the other, mm -hmm. or one column of neurons in the, in the, the uh, cerebral cortex will be trying to suppress others. So for example, in the visual system, uh, at the very back of your brain, uh, right there over the occipital notch, mm -hmm. um, right there's an area that just does outlines or straight lines, and so Wait, really? there are ones, yeah. Hmm. So it's, or at least it's primarily focused on that. So, for example, if you are looking at the edge of a doorway, mm -hmm. right, it will, it has one column in every pixel of your visual field that is saying, is this a straight up and down line? Mm -hmm. Is this a horizontal line? Is this a line on a 5, 10, 15 degree angle? Mm -hmm. And the ones that are, say, 5 degrees off, or you know, just a little bit off, whatever the unit is, will say, yeah, I'm right, and it'll start, it'll start firing, and will simultaneously be trying to cause the ones that are right next to it to stop firing, right? So you're getting edge enhancement at the you know at that right. very minute level okay and so whatever the pattern is and it it will hook up with other other areas that are in the next pixel over and it will be asking the same question right so you get how do you get extended lines mm -hmm. right and it will uh, it will enhance the the acuity of your vision right which is already gone through several layers of that same process and you'll get these these very distinct spikes in activity mm -hmm. surrounded by a field of very quiet neurons right hmm. and that's true everywhere so okay. the, the amygdala which deals with um feelings of anger and fear right? threat another okay. and fear and things like that but also on another level it's dealing with anything that is likely to put your body out of balance, right? So mm -hmm. there, there are all these homeostatic balances, right? You're not too hot, not too cold. You're, you know, you're not hungry, you're, right? You're very comfortable. Mm -hmm. right? And so the amygdala is always saying, oh, things are out of alignment. Things are out of alignment. It's right. And it's always shouting about this thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's causing you to have behaviors that will bring you back into that homeostatic balance. Okay. Right. Whatever it is. So you're threatened by something, and it brings it back into alignment. Okay. It also works with those kind of things that might happen in the near future. So, okay. you know, you see the snarling wolf approaching you, and you go, oh, that's dangerous. I had better, you know, attack it or run away. Right. Right. Um, right. But it gets you ready for the next thing that's coming up. At the same time, you have another nucleus in the brain that's called the septal nucleus. And this nucleus is always saying, everything is wonderful. This is, you know, it's just a wonderfully pleasant sensation. And, uh, you know, if you stimulate that in someone, they'll go, oh, you're, you're just the greatest, greatest person ever. <laughs> right? And, right? Or they'll like, whatever is going on is just wonderful and like everything is love and it's like, you know, it's like, an, uh, you know, like people on ecstasy. Right. Will be like, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. And it's also there to suppress and contain the, the, amygdala. Uh, the amygdala. Right. Right. So, and vice versa. Right. So the amygdala is always going like, oh, there's a threat. There's a threat. There's a threat. 
and the central nucleus is always going, no, it's fine, it's, life is groovy, life is wonderful, it's blissful. And so if you, if you get a rat or something and you burn out the septal nucleus in a rat, you have a very dangerous rat. Like it's, it, it will, hmm. you know, it, it will absolutely attack you, like until it is dead. And then if you burn out the amygdala, you get a rat who's just blessed out all the time and <laughs> will never do anything. So then what, what did you find? So like you've been talking to, you know, people who are enlightened and how does, so does visualization do something to the balance? So what's interesting is, is that you can train the, essentially what's, what seems to be going on is that there's something called the default network. Okay. And the default network was something they discovered when they would stick people in MRI machines and they would say, don't think about anything or do anything. Okay. So like, it's the stuff that goes on when there's nothing else to do when you're slightly bored and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so if you have advanced meditators using whatever technique, right, that network gets very quiet. Um, hmm. it's also heavily overlapping with something called the executive network, which is the two of them are something which controls like sensation of the self. Like I'm here, I'm the one doing this, right? If that's very strong, your default network, your, uh, executive network is very strong. Right? Okay. If you, if you worry about things or ruminate about things, that stuff is all governed by, the network mm -hmm. um and there are you know time mental time travel so thinking about the past and the future mm -hmm. these are also governed by that so if you stick someone in an mri machine and they start worrying and ruminating over things that happened in the past and all that right that's default network stuff if you talk to somebody who has done a lot of meditation right what seems to have happened is that that all quiets down Right. Mm -hmm. There's still some activity, right, because they're still a human being, but they're not doing these ruminative, right, worries about the past and the future, right? They're present focused. Mm -hmm. That's all very quiet. Now, what's interesting is that this also happens if you give people LSD, uh -huh. right? That network gets very quiet. Really? And so you get looser thinking, you get these hallucinations, right, a lot of the time, mm -hmm. which are also described in some of the advanced meditative tracts, right? So you get LSD-like displays of colors and, right. you know, that move and vibrate and form figures and all these things. But if you are somebody who takes a lot of psychedelics, you don't end up with somebody who's enlightened. Yeah. And there's a big question of why that is. Um, you know, and it's that they're overlapping, mm -hmm. but it's not the same thing. Um, I suspect that my, my feeling is, you know, cause I've done, uh, I've done a lot of meditation and allegedly I've done a lot of psychedelics. Uh, and my feeling is that meditation is a skill. So you get like practice, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but hallucinogenics, they kind of, throw you into a spot without really showing you how to get there on your own. Right. Right. So 
it's probably just kind of like the D, you know, you can ride in the back of a car, but that doesn't mean you can drive the car. Right. That would be my, that would be my feeling of it. Right. And also it's like, there's a difference between me showing you a picture of an elephant and asking you to imagine an elephant. Right. In like intensive detail. Mm -hmm. Um, now one of the fascinating things is that, uh, both psychedelics and meditation are shown to have positive effects on a particular subset of serotonergic receptors mm-hmm. in the brain. What kind of um, receptors? What was that word? S- serotonin receptors. Oh, serotonin. serotonin. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, interestingly, th- this is also, these are implicated in things like depression, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a depressed person, you go through these cycles where you know you have these very kind of tight associations between things but you also have like uh you do have a lot of that rumination so you Mm -hmm. think a lot about like oh what went wrong today you know how am i going to make it through the next day or so right so everything becomes very kind of closed in thinking very circular thinking very repetitive thinking Mm -hmm. if you are somebody on psychedelics right you start th- all of these connections light up that normally do not light up and you have like wild associations of things mm-hmm. if you are meditative right you also over time come to have these wider associations you go through periods where you will have visualizations that are very intense mm-hmm. right it's not the end point of meditation it's not the end point of enlightenment but along the road to enlightenment there's something um in some traditions, it's called the arising and passing away, and you get these, you know, visual and auditory fireworks that happen, mm-hmm. right? Like, all this stuff is going on, and you're like, wow, this is really impressive, and the, the people who are really experiencing this go, yeah, that's it's very nice. You know, mm-hmm. it says you're getting somewhere, but it's not the end point of what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there are all of these curious similarities and curious interconnections between these things, uh, that lead me to believe that yes, in fact, like there's a neurological change that's happening just by visualizing, just by meditating. We have no idea why this should happen, mm-hmm. right? But we do know that like it takes a while of doing fairly intensive meditation, either of the concentrative or uh, the insight varieties, mm-hmm. to actually get anywhere, and that's consistent with the need for long-term changes in these receptors. Okay. Right, so you, you upregulate them, but you upregulate them slowly. And now, to bring it full circle back to the memory work, what's interesting is that Bruno himself says it may take three to six months for you to be able to get your visualizations up and very intense. Yeah, yeah. Right, which also says to me that, like, you have to get your, right, a lot of people have to get their receptors adjusted by these very slow methods right yeah it's just neurologically wired biologically wired and you it, it takes a while to get them up and going mm-hmm. um so that you can have those very intense visualizations right and the the tibetan manuals that teach you how to do this will also say yes it takes it takes a while for people to a get so they can sit for long enough, mm-hmm. and B, 
so that they can actually visualize really complex figures mm-hmm. right, in a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all very interesting. You know, I have no like in laboratory data to back any of it up, but it's all starting to become like a fascinating uh, observational collection. So tell me about like the people you've talked to who claim enlightenment. Like I, I listened to an interview with one of them uh, last year, I think uh, that was one of the older ones you'd done. And he had a website. I totally can't remember his name. I didn't, I didn't. Oh, so you're probably talking about Daniel Ingram. Yes. Who does, he, he does pragmatic Buddhism. Mm-hmm. He essentially, there's a, the tradition that he works in is, uh, Theravada, which is South Asian, it's more or less the closest to uh, the original Buddhism that was practiced uh-huh. by the Buddha and his followers. Um, and the particular tradition that he worked in was uh, something by uh, Mahasi Sayadaw. Uh-huh. And they have detailed, I mean, there are, there are manuals that go back thousands of years, but, you know, something called the stages of insight. Mm-hmm. And so there are 16 uh, signposts on the way to having a particular, uh, 16 signposts along each of four paths. And they say, okay, if you, uh, if you start meditating, you'll hit this first signpost, uh, which is called a nana or knowledge, so it'll be the knowledge of mind and body. So you will have the sensation of, I have a mind and I have a body, and the two are not necessarily the same thing, Uh right? I can see myself thinking, I can, you know, I can feel bodily processes going on, right? You have all this. Uh, There are specific nanas that are not pleasant, so there's a whole set in the middle that are called dark night nanas so as you like a chod or whatever like the a a little bit yeah it's related so you have these things where you have intense experiences of fear and disgust and you want nothing more than to quit meditating and you say this is all worthless Mm -hmm. and if you talk to people who are uh experienced meditators they'll be like oh yeah i completely recognize that you know Mm -hmm. i completely recognize that there are points at which your meditation just sort of falls apart and you have nothing stable on which to rest and you have the sensation that like everything is crumbling and you're, you know, your own body and mind and your own, your own self is going away. And like, it's a very disturbing feeling, which is, but eventually if you get through that, you Mm -hmm. get to something called equanimity. Mm hmm. Right, and in equanimity, like it's all balanced out again, right? And you're no longer emotionally disturbed. There are no more upheavals, and you reach a plateau, right? From which you can see. Right? There's a similar kind of cycle uh, taught in uh, in the Western mystery tradition too, that involves sort of the you know like the, you know I mean I guess the famous one would be the Dark Night of the Soul of Saint. right, yeah. Um, but even in, uh, even in like ceremonial magic traditions, which, you know, I know modern ceremonial magic is, is pretty heavily influenced by, by 
Buddhism and Eastern stuff that, that was sort of like brought back by the theosophists. But, um, but even there you have like this experience with this thing where you're like, you know, at first you're going to be doing these rituals and these meditations and you're going to have incredible effects and everything is going to feel amazing. And you're going to have like visualizations are going to be working. Everything's going to be great. And then you're going to go through a period where it all just sort of drops out and it becomes boring and it becomes, you know, you know, the, the normal world seems to be norm, way too normal again. And like, and you just have to work through it. You keep doing the practices, even though they don't seem to be doing anything and it'll come back again or something will change still right yeah and that's true and also if you look through the buddhist tantras Mm -hmm. you'll find um you'll find a lot of things which look fairly transparently like the so-called western esoteric tradition oh yeah yeah i actually um i took an initiation into um, a form of Tibetan Buddhism Dzogchen mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, and yeah the practices that I learned through there even though I just learned like one level like the basic stuff uh, it was very very similar to western practices in, in a lot of ways like the, the visualization stuff and, and the um, yeah, so that was that was really fascinating. Yeah, that the the Dzogchen tradition is is really fascinating and mm-hmm. really, I think it's particularly amenable to uh, to Americans who like mm-hmm. the idea of you know because part of it is just kind of sit sit and do non meditation, right? Mm-hmm. Be there in the natu- natural state, and rather than a lot of these more elaborate visualizations where you have to, you know, distinguish your Vajrayogini from Vajrapani, <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. we, you know, like, this is not something that you have in your cultural context, yeah. right? So, right, and so you're like, well, why does this guy have six arms? And why is he on fire? And should we feel, you know, mm-hmm. how should I feel about that? <laughs> um, right, but Dzogchen, you kind of go, you can kind of go, okay, like, I get the whole right mm-hmm. transparency of experience and right and you're already enlightened you just don't know it yet right um, <laughs> right and the kind of panoramic view where right where you can see all of space and time and it you know collapses into a point mm-hmm. you go, oh that's that's great <laughs> right but you know you also have to be a little bit careful because you know as with everything like the stuff that goes with your particular predilections, sometimes you fall into a trap with it and mm-hmm. you get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And you can sort of, you can be like, Oh, you know, it's, it's blissful and it's right. And good concentration. And I feel a little bit of relief. And so you end up, you know, not progressing or you end up kind of just uh, drifting along in semi-consciousness rather than enhanced consciousness. Yeah, I um I feel like uh you know there's a there's a number of those sorts of traps in mystical traditions um and I think one that's that that I've noticed in in kabbalistic traditions is uh is sort of the the trap of like of calculation. Like there's so much to calculate and so much information and so many connections and you can become so focused on just like collecting all of those and uh, understanding those that again you sort of fail to advance but instead you just sort of sit in a 
calculating state where it's numbers and facts and connections and correspondences and not and not you know ascending up the tree of life or ascending towards a divine experience or whatever yeah yeah and that's you know and they they tell you that in the Mm -hmm. traditions all of them warn you about that and they say you know this is all done in stages right so that Mm -hmm. you will be able to do it right rather than just saying okay now everybody you're enlightened right (laughs) you're right you're you you are now identical with the godhead Mm -hmm. uh you know like if that worked great yeah but you know but most people you have to do it kind of like okay we're we're kind of working on things we're adjusting these things and so like like i said if you have a, a default network where like every day you are worried 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 depressed 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 right mm-hmm. ruminating on stuff it takes a while to calm that down right mm-hmm. and to find something else to do with that default network when you have a down moment than to go, gosh, I you know I hate my I hate my kid's sister or you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, or that really you know my my speech really didn't go very well. Oh, how horrible! You know what, right? Because all of that stuff is at some level, you know, evolutionary adaptive, right? Yeah. So you say, right like if you are a hunter gatherer, right, going like well the mammoth got away, right? That and like what could we do better? that makes some sense. But if you're like stuck on the mammoth hunt from three seasons ago, mm-hmm. right. And you're still working on that. Like eventually you have to learn to let it drop. Right. Um, right. Um, so speaking of Kabbalism and, uh, and Zogshan and all that stuff. Uh, one thing, I don't know if you've had a chance, but uh, David came Smith. Yes. Uh, he's has done a couple of really wild, really great books. Uh, and, I, I but, haven't read, any but if his... you read those things, you had better know, you know, one or two or three of alchemy, Kabbalism mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, uh, Zogshan, right. And he yeah. never explicitly says that it's Zogshan, but it really totally is. <laughs> I, I've been meaning to check out his books. I think I listened to uh, a podcast interview with him and he was, I mean, you know, he's 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 got all that artwork that's super mm-hmm. intense and just incredible to look at. Um, and I was listening to a podcast interview with him, and I just remember it, it was like so it was so hard to follow along with him that like, you know, podcasts for me, I'm always like cleaning the house or taking a shower <laughs> or washing dishes or cooking. And I'm like listening to this interview. I'm like, I can't follow this. I have to I have to stop and think about what this guy is saying. Uh because he's he's really he is a very intense individual uh and incredibly smart or at least incredibly like he's his ideas are not simple to communicate yeah it's not <laughs> it's not the it's not the 101 kind of stuff this is yeah. like heavy duty like layers of interpretation mm-hmm. and also at a certain point you just kind of have to like dial back on trying to figure it out and just kind of bathe in it for a while. Uh-huh. And then, right, eventually you go, oh, like it all falls into place somehow, right? Mm-hmm. But you just have to, if, yeah, <laughs> let it so. But if you try and... to pick it apart, it's not, gonna, it's not going to work for you. It's yeah. like one of, the, it's one of these things where it's really intense and it's really heavy duty, and you just, you kind of have to go, okay, 
this is you know it is what it is and you just let it let it go and you go, and then you find the next point where you go oh okay that makes sense yeah well it's kind of like a, a dambrus idiarum you know right when you first read it like you must have spent so much time with it being like am i translating this right is this gibberish and then and then you like the next day you're like oh shit I get it now. <laughs> uh, I mean, I had that feeling a, a number of times reading it because I, I had to read it like probably two or three times to to really understand some of the points he was making. And then there was some point where I was like, oh, this is like Plato. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, which which I really. Uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed having those sorts of moments with 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 Bruno. Uh, it's probably time to go back and read again. I don't think I've I, n- I never finished reading uh, Greer's translation. <laughs> I think yeah, it's I I I have it on my stack of things mm-hmm. to read right now, um, and I'm really glad that it came out. Yeah, because uh, back when I was doing the translation originally, there were like all of these rumors that everyone and their brother was doing a version of it. Mm-hmm. Like, like and but these only these rumors only appeared when I was you know on the last ten pages. Of, of the translation and like, mm-hmm. Oh boy, this is going to be really rough. And then like nothing happened. You know, there mm-hmm. was a whole group in, there was a whole group in London that was going to do one. Um, and they never got off the ground and there was, you know, different things. Um, but, uh, someone after I'd published the thing said, Oh, darn it. Now David Allen Greer's, uh, version will never come out. And so it took a couple of years, but it finally did. Yeah. And I'm really glad because, you know, uh, the more of this that is out there, the better it is for all of us. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, re- it's really interesting material. And like I said, I, I have no particular pride in myself as a translator. Mm-hmm. Like I'm the translator of last resort. Like, yeah. Nobody, nobody else did this for 400 years. Yeah. Because well, you um, you you learned Latin by reading a dictionary, pretty much, right? Like you just sort of well, struggled through yeah, it as and, you went. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. And then the funny part was was that I was reading um, a textbook by one of the foremost teachers and, and Latinists mm-hmm. of of the twentieth century, and he said, "Really, the best thing you should do is get a huge dictionary and just like st- you know start learning it that way." He says mm-hmm. that's really the best method, <laughs> and I was like, "See." There it is. You know, he's like, it's obviously, it's obviously great if you can have a good teacher, mm-hmm. but he said, you're, you're better off. He says, here's a, this is the dictionary I use. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and this is how I learned it. <laughs> so do you, uh, do you have a good dictionary to recommend? I think I have a, I have a Latin, a Collins Latin dictionary. That's like this big. It's like maybe four inches on a side. It's very tiny, but it's thick. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have, yeah, I have a couple of little ones. But... Yeah. Um, you know, I may need to invest in the, the huge one. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I'm now just finishing up the collection of magical essays for Bruno. Oh, cool. How, how are they? Uh, they're good. They're good. Now, what's interesting about those is that they are heavily focused on two areas. So one of them is on these kind of psychological issues like the memory work is. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it's, I, I haven't included that one in it, but the uh, there's one called 30 Statues, which is part of the big 
you know encyclopedia of memory technology that he did uh-huh. uh, that was that was co-bound in the same manuscript versions um, and then there's one called on bonds in general or or, or on binding in general mm-hmm. which uh, if you've read Kulianu, he points out that this is one of the first and mo- and would have been one of the most important documents on not only psychology but mass psychology uh, in the Western tradition. So he spends a lot of time talking about like not only how do you bind a particular person or like influence them mm-hmm. in their mind right through through their thoughts or through their emotions. Right, which is the whole point of the, the essay, but also how can you do this on the scale, uh, he calls it civil bonding or bonding on the si- scale of a city. Whoa. Right. So, like, and he's like, okay, like, you think of this as magic that, you know, a wizard does. He says, but really, like, all of his magic is also, like, you know, the, the binding magic is the stuff that orators do. So if you have some guy who's really good at giving speeches, mm-hmm. right? And if you look at the 20th century, like, you know, Hitler was really good. Right? And Mussolini, speeches, yeah. these guys, right? The speeches were really uplifting. You know, in a more positive way, Martin Luther King or Barack Obama or something, right? But, like, how they accomplish that connection with their audience through the speech, mm-hmm. right? And he says, you know, who does this? It's great orators, great uh, poets, right? Who will hmm. you know write a poem, and you feel this tremendous emotion when you read a few words. And he's like, "How do they do that? That's that's what the magic is all about." And you know, one of the things he says is they have to have a piece of that thing in them that is in you, and the two things respond to each other and are bound to each other. Like attracts like, or it's uh, right. it's sort of like Bruno's um, concept of love. Uh, the the binding power of love, right? Yeah, and hmm. also you know he also will say opposites attract, right? You can mm-hmm. work through contraries, um, oh. and you can work by things that at first blush are not related to each other, and so you know he would say, well, why do you why do you like your wife, right? Why do you love mm-hmm. your wife, and why does she love you? And you know one theory of it is is that you are attracted to those par- those things in your wife that are like the things in you. So you have a similarity of interests or mm-hmm. your personalities are like in some way, right? You you both are interested in, you know, esoteric things or you are both, you know, dreamy people or you, you know, you're both of sanguine temperament. Right, right. right. So there, there's that whole thing. Um so it can be, but it can also be contraries, right? Such as so like, you like, you're like, oh well, I'm like really up, right? Like I'm really relaxed, and my my wife is really detail oriented and very like tense, and mm-hmm. she's like, and she makes sure that we're on time all the time, right? So mm-hmm. like that's you know, it, it's a good compliment, a good fit, right, right? Or right, or I feel you know, I feel a fear of abandonment. Mm-hmm. And my wife really loves to take care of people, right? Mm. Or something like that. Yeah. Or, right. But in that case, they wouldn't necessarily be contraries, but those would be... Those are complementary things. Right, right. right. Um, so it's a, it's a mixture of things. 
Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's so a lot of this stuff that is couched in the language of magic mm-hmm. right, is really just being really astute about the way the world works. So a lot of it is what's called natural magic or natural philosophy. Yeah. And I think that's something that we find that we see in a ton of um, of Renaissance and medieval magic. Um, even, you know, so like, uh, have you ever read any? Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, you know, the three books yeah, of yeah. philosophy. So like his first book tends to be mostly about uh, medical magic, which was astrological based. Uh, and it's filled with like all of these correspondences between like herbs and medicines with planets and all those sorts of stuff. Like he, he was trying to be helpful. It's just medical science was not moving very quickly at the time. And, uh, but I don't think he, I don't think that in Agrippa's mind, he was saying like, these are magical forces, you know, that are supernatural. He was saying like, this is how it works. This is actually how you heal somebody. And it works because, you know, uh, Libra's in charge of your stomach. So you take this herb associated with Libra and it'll fix your stomach because it fixes the Libra influence or whatever. Like he didn't, he thought that's how it worked, but he wasn't trying to be magical. He's just trying to use the how how everybody thought the world actually worked in order to fix things right yeah so yeah so th- with a lot of the renaissance and, and and medieval stuff you have to remember i think we talked about this in the previous conversation we had mm-hmm. that you can trust their observations so they're actually seeing the things that they claim to be seeing mm-hmm. most of the time i mean you know the the but you can't trust the theory right right Right. So like the explanations that underlie things are completely off base. So like four element theory where you're in earth, water, mm-hmm. fire and um, air, earth, water, fire and air. Mm-hmm. Um, right. We know those as being different states of matter. So solid, liquid, gas, mm-hmm. plasma. Right. We understand like, like we have a different understanding of what's going on there. Mm hmm than they did or things which they thought of being polar opposites like wet and dry mm-hmm. like as a fundamental property of things is not necessarily right it 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 it, it has a different place in modern physics so like mm-hmm. you know whether things are hydrophilic or lipophilic or you know whether they are powder you know in powder form or they're in these different um different structures yeah. Right? We don't think of them as being poles of some characteristic. Right. Like right. some fundamental thing. Um, you know, they have a whole whole thing where after Aristotle, they say, you know, there's a force of gravity, which is the force of heaviness, and there's a force called levity, which is the force of lightness. Right? <laughs> so something, right? And we're like, no, there's only one. And yeah. they would have been like, What? You know, well, I mean, it's like hot and cold, right? You know, which is another but, another one of the fundamental properties. Like we just understand cold now as a a lesser degree of hot, right? Yeah. So, like they had, and they had all of these things. They had things that they thought were monopolar, mm-hmm. right, and things that were dipolar, and they were just wrong about what some of them were like. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like, "Well, is light and dark are those two poles, or is it just?" dark is the absence of light or right mm-hmm. or or you know or if you want to talk flan o'brien and uh, uh robert anton wilson 
with the DeSelby theory where uh, light is just the absence of dark and we, we need to be really careful because dark is always being generated and like is very frightening and you know so mm -hmm. we need to have we, we need to have something to remove the excess dark from the world because <laughs> um, he had yeah so they Plan O'Brien came up with this, uh -huh. this you know crackpot who right he's his theory is like you know dark is this substance that will fill up any space if if you know if it isn't extracted enough so that light can get in uh -huh. um Right. So there are all the, and, and like he became this figure of fun in the footnotes of one of uh, Robert Anton Wilson's books. And so there are all these critics arguing back and forth about the DeSelby theory of darkness and so forth. Um, but yeah, so they like, so anyway, so with, with like gravity and levity or hot and cold, like, it's not that they didn't know that something was hot and they didn't know that something was cold. Like they were accurately describing things. It's just that the theory of like what makes them this hot and this cold was off. Mm -hmm. Like it, it wasn't accurate and was eventually replaced with something that was more accurate. Yeah. And so like in the history of ideas, this is really fascinating because if you look at these, um, these natural philosophy essays, right? Like with Bruno, Bruno also does a, a medical one where he is using those Lullian wheels where you, you know, you're mm -hmm. rotating different wheels in different ways and connects them with astrological magic or with astrological medicine, but also is like trying to describe how you, where you place different kinds of fever on these wheels as a diagnostic tool. Oh, okay. Right? Like, when your fever starts and when it ends, you know, whether it's tertian fever or quartan fever, which are both malarial fevers and which are very exactly described, mm -hmm. right? Like they knew what they were. They did, just didn't know as well as we do how to fix them or what the causes of them were. Right? They didn't have germ theory. They didn't have any of these other things. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's but it's fascinating to see this is like state-of-the-art medicine of you know the late 1500s right right like and and very clearly like in all of the things that bruno does he's trying to like upgrade the magical technology that was existent at the time he's like oh well you know the art of memory is an improved version of the ars notoria right right we're supposed to learn that you know seven seven liberal arts seven necromantic arts seven of this seven of that seven of the other thing right he's like okay that's all crap Right? He's like, I know people who have done that, and he's like, it's good for a while, and then they like stop doing it, and the whole thing, you know, <laughs> collapses. And also, you're dealing with demons and all this stuff, and he's like, and like maybe that's all crap too. But also, like if it isn't crap, you're in trouble, right? Because they're demons, yeah, and God will get mad at you, <laughs> um, right? And so he does, in fact. Have have some stuff on on spiritual magic and all that stuff, but you can sort of tell it's like it's fairly perfunctory. Um, like it's not his, it's not where his comfort zone lies. Right. Uh, so you know, so it's it, it's fairly loosely sketched out. Um, but anyway, so all of these all of these technologies are kind of like he's trying to upgrade and improve stuff on the basis of like 
here's where things stand in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the latest, greatest thing, and here's how, if we bring in, you know, Ramon Lul and his his technology, then we can, you know, have better diagnostics for medical purposes. You know, no more of this, like, sticking leeches on people, right? We'll now, uh, you know, stick piranha on people, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> right. Right. Because he, he um, Bruno was a very forward thinker. Like, he wanted to be... He wanted to be at the head of these sorts of innovations, Cindy. Like he was really trying. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, like, he was really trying, and he was re- he, he was not really a he was not a great experimenter. Like they mm-hmm. hadn't quite figured out that technique yet mm-hmm. that they would in the next century. You know, when you're dealing with like Newton, mm-hmm. um, Newton and his prisms, or you know, or sticking a needle in his eye to see if he can distort the eyeball. Right. Um, right. The or boil. So yeah, yeah. So a lot of a lot of Bruno's stuff is not experimental, and some of it is not even observational, not mm-hmm. directly observational. He's trying to synthesize everything that everybody else knew into something that can be useful, and that right. But it, you can kind of see the first reaching for the scientific method. There, it, it, you know, what would become the experimental method. Um, that reminded me that sort of idea of like the early, uh, so in the, um, 30 seals, you said you found stuff that sort of made you think of how like hard drives work or something of that nature. Um, Oh, I'm trying oh to... so yeah, so like data structures. Data structures, that's what it was, data structures, uh, which makes sense. I mean, I, I felt that way too when I was reading it. I was like, oh, this is kind of a, you know, this is a this is a bee tree. This is a red black tree. Like you know, he had he definitely described trees. Right. Yeah. Right. So he has the trees in there. He has other ones that are like, you know, he's really fond of circles. So there mm-hmm. there are a lot of lot more wheels and things like that where we would have just lists or tables. Um, well, know, his but, uh, his uh, his zodiac poem, um, the zodiac mnemonic, is a, is totally a linked list. Like that's yeah. 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 So he so he, he does a lot of that sort of thing. Um and in fact there are like five of the seals that are variations on the uh on the on the uh, ordered list or unordered list. Yeah. Right. And there are the ones like the quadratic wheels where he's like, Okay, you're actually if you think about it, what he's actually doing is he's making like an outline, mm-hmm. right? Like a hierarchical list. Yeah. So, right, you know, the big headings and the little ones, right, the Roman numerals and the big uh, capital letters and then the and then uh, Arabic numerals and then small letters and so on and so forth. And he's doing that, but he's also doing associative webs with that, mm-hmm. right? So you can extend anything that he does into more and more complex and more and more freeform um, structures. You know, I'm going to... Uh, now talk about something that I uh, am very uneducated about, so I might sound like a total idiot. But uh, it makes me wonder if anybody who's working on machine learning algorithms has looked into um, stuff like uh, Giordano Bruno's mnemonic systems to see if there are techniques that can be extracted from Bruno that haven't yet been sort of like exploited or duplicated in computer science. Um, 
You know, I have no idea. It would be something I, I, to look into. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah, that would be interesting. Bruno and machine learning. Uh, I have a, a friend locally who is a software developer who's been taking machine learning classes online and he keeps trying to get me to do it. So maybe I'll, I'll do that. I'll be the only person probably who has studied machine learning and Bruno at the same time. That's great. <laughs> I don't know if that'll do me any good, but that might be interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I also, uh, there was something that I wanted to bring up earlier when you were talking about uh, the default network and, um, and people in MRIs or people who are sort of like, you know, when you're bored and what happens when, the, when in your brain, when you're bored and stuff, uh, because I've gone to some Quaker meetings. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a, a friend's meeting, but yeah, yeah, I have. So, you know I mean? Like the main part of it is sitting in silence for like an hour or something like that. And <coughs> it is you know, the boredom does start to creep in. Like, I'm not really sure what other people do during a meeting, but for me, you know, I would sit in silence. And then after a while I'd be like, I should probably use all of this silent time to, you know, practice some meditation or go through a memory palace or, you know, so I started working, you know, using it to do inner work, like stuff that I would normally do when I'm meditating or whatever. Um, but it made me think like, what does that say about a person's default network or what would, you know, would a friend's meeting be something that would uh, invoke the default network? Does it cause people anxiety? Do people do nervous people have hard times at those? Like what's, what's it about? Yeah. So in anything where you have people just kind of sitting quietly, Mm -hmm. there's an issue because a lot of us have, like if you think of it as having an attentional window, like mm-hmm. you know the stuff that you could pay attention to, um, like part of the meditative techniques that people use are ways to fill up that the bottom part of that window a little bit, mm-hmm. so that you you know can overcome the noise that your own nervous system makes. So if you do absolutely nothing, right, all of a sudden for most people. Right, thoughts will start coming up. You'll mm-hmm. be like, "Did I, did I, you know, did I leave the iron on? Did I, you know, did I feed the cat? Mm-hmm. Did I, right? Like, you'll start, and you'll be like, I wonder what, what's the deal with pancakes? Like, why are they flat and round? <laughs> right? Like, and you just like whatever the random, right? And random stuff will just come up, right? And so, you know, that's why a lot of times when you're beginning, they'll give you a mantra. Mm-hmm. Right, they will, you know. So you, if you say, oh, you know, you you do this under your breath, and like you do that instead of doing some, dis, you know, going after every distracting thought. Right. Right. And so as you get more and more practiced at this, right, your default network gradually calms down. Okay. Right? And as we said, there there are these situations called upheavals where you reach a certain point and all of a sudden like you can't sit still and you can't right like and your emotional state goes you know haywire and you're you know you get giddy or you get terribly upset or like just sadness comes up different emotions come up in the thing and that's like i said you have different parts of your brain that are acting to like suppress each other and hold each other down and kind of keep everything in balance 
And so if the governing areas of your forebrain, which is where the you know executive network and default network start, Mm-hmm. Or, or, or are, you know, part of them, part of them is there. So that stuff is kind of sitting there saying, you know, every, you kids in the back seat, calm down all the time. If, you know, mom and dad stop being so like, okay, really shut up. We're, we're, we're going to drive to Disney World. Shut up, everybody, you know, for mm-hmm. all the way through Georgia, right? If they don't have to try so hard or they aren't trying so hard anymore, then every so often one of the kids is going to go, ah, you know, and make a big, <laughs> big noise and big mm-hmm. stir up right same thing with your brain right sometimes if you are not like white knuckling it all the time right and you've been doing that for a long time right like you let up a little bit and you're like oh this is nice and something will go ah you know <laughs> and you know your amygdala will be like oh there's a there's a there's a wolf and you're like there's no wolf <laughs> it's right? an imaginary wolf don't go outside right it's an imaginary wolf. it's an imaginary dump truck going down the street <laughs> And a you wolf know, is stay driving in the house, it. right? A wolf yeah. is driving it. All of this stuff, and so like you'll have these upheavals that happen, right? As you're slowly, slowly, slowly letting go of the you know the white knuckle level of keeping those things down, mm-hmm. right? Keeping those things from acting up. They're going to act up for a while, and you sort of go, okay, there you go, you know. And they're like, oh no, no, there is no, there is no wolf, there is no dump truck going to run me down in the street like you gradually you know and it all sort of settles in and so you know if you're a quaker you know and you've been to the going to those meetings for years and years and years right you have no problem letting your letting your brain go into its natural state into a calm state Mm -hmm. into a neutral state where you're very clear right it's very vivid right and you're totally present yeah And this is true in Zogshan or anything else is like, that's the whole point of it, right? Is that you go and gradually, your concentration improves, your stability improves, mm-hmm. right? And that's, and then when you are in that state, most of the time, that is your default state. And the default network is working like that almost all of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there are some folk stories and folk theories Right, where if you are enlightened, you are unable to think or say the word I, right? And you know, you don't have this concept of a self anymore. And which is silly. Like, you know, a person who has in, become enlightened is perfectly capable of like recognizing themselves in the mirror. They haven't been lobotomized. They, mm-hmm. Right. They're they're just, you know, aware. They no longer have that false sense of self, right? The self that you have constructed is anything as anything more than the stuff that you have constructed it out of okay the you know the basic sensations right so you still have the sense of feeling of your body you still have thoughts that come up from time to time although they tend to be less intrusive and you know more wispy or you know or they may not come up spontaneously at all um you know as my one guest said like he turned the radio off in his head one day, right, turned the volume knob all the way down and never let it off. And then he, he said, oh, I haven't had a thought all day long. Now, somebody else pointed out, like, if you think that you haven't had a thought all day, that itself is a thought. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't know what to make of that, but there it is. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so, but there is, there, there tends to be, as you go, 
more and more space between those thoughts. They aren't just arising spontaneously, but you can still think about things. You can still do everything that anybody else does. You just have fewer apprehensions and fewer misapprehensions okay. about the way the world is, right? So, like, your most of your attentional window is taken up with actually paying attention to what's coming in through your senses right now, right? And right. that never gets boring, right? Because it's never, like, that. the bottom edge of that window is never unfilled, and it's never overfilled. It's just there, mm-hmm. right? And do you feel when you've spoken to some of these folks who who um, who claim enlightenment, do you feel like they have achieved that? Uh, it's very weird because my model of enlightenment is this kind of very westernized psychology mm-hmm. view in which it's like if you are becoming more enlightened, that's like that's the point of enlightenment mm-hmm. is like anytime you are moving in the direction of being enlightened that is like that's it already okay um and then like i tend to think of it as at the top end that it's like an asymptotic curve like you get closer and closer to the point where you're indistinguishable from somebody who is enlightened mhm but you know but do is that is that forever? Is that permanent? I don't know. Hmm. So I mean, I I think I trust Daniel Ingram when he says that he has experienced uh, the psychological and physiological changes that he says that he has experienced. Uh-huh. Um, and I think I have no basis on which to say that he is not enlightened. Right. Um, and you know, like people. People freak out about it and they get very emotional about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he has a plausible case to make that yes, he has he is enlightened. Hmm. And I think at the same time, I think uh, Vinay Gupta was right uh, when he was like, you know, people think enlightenment is this weird and kind of out of this world thing, and he's like, it's very common. It's a part of normal human experience, and there are lots of people, many of whom you would not think of as being enlightened who are enlightened. Hmm. And a third thing is that I tend to think that the most important pieces of it are the early stages, right? And are the ones that, so if you are less worried in your daily life, if you are more likely to feel compassion toward people, you have these other these other spiritual attainments, which are not necessarily the uh, the end point of insight, which is how Daniel, one of the ways Daniel described it. So he says, okay, you do insight meditation where you think like, what is real? What is not real? What, you know, what is this going on in my mind? Is there a self that I can find? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and what what is happening with each particle of, uh, sense data that's coming in. Mm-hmm. So he uses a, a method called noting. So you say there is there is the feeling of breathing in my mouth. There is the sound of someone speaking. There is I am seeing uh, the computer screen. I am feeling the floor against my feet. Right. If you right. 
right? Or and then you, you gradually, as you do that, you become more. They become more and more atomized. So if you take a step, there's the feeling of the start of the step. You know, there's the point where the last part of your foot leaves the ground. There is moving your foot through the air. There is putting it down. What hits the ground first? Right when it's fully on the ground, when you shift your weight onto it, but right, and that gets faster and faster until you have this atomized view of every sensation that you have. It's and, like and you're noting all of that in in real time. Total mindfulness, sort of thing. Right, it's total total annotated mindfulness. mindfulness. Yeah. Right. Huh. And then that that produces a whole series of things that happen until uh, you reach a state where you have gone through all four paths of the uh, of the, the progress to enlightenment hmm. and you reach the end of that insight path so you are as enlightened as it is possible for a human being to be mm-hmm. right you are an arhat uh, and you have essentially there's no more commentary on what is going on in in those six sense fields Hmm. Right. So as he says, according to one of the, the sutras, there's a guy named Behea of the bark cloth who goes to the Buddha for enlightenment. And the Buddha is like, oh, he's like, look, I'm on my I'm on my begging rounds right now. Can't this wait until after? And the guy's like, no, I have to be enlightened right now. And, you know, and essentially the Buddha says, all right, he says, in the seeing, just the scene. In the hearing, just the heard, right? In the touching, just the touched, mm-hmm. right? And so on and so forth through through all of these things. In the thinking, just the thought. Hmm. He says, that's all there is to enlightenment. And the guy goes, oh. And he's like, yes, that's right. And becomes enlightened. And then <laughs> shortly thereafter is run over by an elephant or something. <laughs> and like, you know, but like, and the, and the Buddha says, uh, he says, that guy got it. He says, what's, you know, the rest of you, you want to argue about the whole thing. He says, this guy, you tell it to him once and he got it. And indeed, he was enlightened. Right? Although I feel so, like if he had, uh, yeah, I don't know if enlightenment gets rid of imaginary garbage trucks and such. But if that guy had had an imaginary elephant, he might have been able to get out of the way. Right. And, but. You know, so I'm not saying that enlightenment is necessarily safe. the best thing for all people, <laughs> mm-hmm. or indeed a safe thing for most people to do. Mm-hmm. Right? What, like, what I say is, is like, it if all that happens in your meditation and your whatever spiritual practices you undertake, that you are more likely to, you know, get a thirsty person a glass of water, or a hungry mm-hmm. person some food. Or, you know, and, and you're a little bit happier and a little bit less worried and a little bit less angry, right? And your imagination is a little more vivid and you're a little more alert and more capable of doing things, right? That's pretty good. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think like, actually... You don't, ha- you don't have to have a realization that all space and time is unitary and you are one with God, mm-hmm. you know, which is all very nice, but like eventually you're going to have to come back and wash the dishes anyway. Mm-hmm. So like just it's, it's the easy ones, the the first wins that are the, really the big ones and you think they're nothing, but like that's the level of spiritual attainment that if everybody could get there, it would be much 
much nicer place. And anybody who gets there feels that the world is a much nicer place than they did before. Yeah, that that makes total sense. I think that's a good note to end on too. I, we've been, we've got a good uh, a good amount of material here, and that was an awesome ramble. I love how we were just like we're gonna ramble. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, do you have a link where people could go to to listen to? Well, I mean, you, you're gonna have to say it out loud. You're not gonna be able to like point people at the link but can you tell uh, tell them where they can go to listen to you uh to your interviews with these with some of these people yes uh so you can go to my uh website mm-hmm. which is bottlerocketscience.net okay right. so all three words mashed into one and then dot net uh you can also find me on twitter at infinite underscore me okay and uh, there is a site that I don't update very much, which is deumbrasidiarum.com. Okay. Uh, and there are other ones around, but if you simply Google me, you should be able to find it. And then your podcast is uh, Startup Geometry. Yep. The podcast is Startup Geometry. Okay. I will include all of those in the show notes. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being on. This is awesome. Um, Thanks a bunch for having me back. Yeah, it was nice to it was nice to to dive into some of these other topics. Like we still we still dug into Bruno, but we didn't have to focus on him the whole time. And that was that was pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then speaking of that. So your next Bruno book, do you know when do you have a, an estimate on it yet? Like, do you know when it's going to be out? I'm, go- I'm trying to get it out by the first of September, September. Yeah. So like in a couple weeks. Yeah. Oh, geez. So I'm literally exciting. I'm okay. writing the I'm I'm writing the introduction right now, okay. and uh, I have to go back through it and add in some more footnotes. And what's the title going to be? Uh, magic. Just magic. Yeah. Magic by Giordano Bruno. Yeah. Okay. And that's book, book five. All right. That so, sounds good. And then that's good. How many? And then, how many more before you've got the whole collected edition, you think? Um, so I've committed to myself to mm-hmm. do the remaining memory works, and there are three of those left. And one of them is the statues. One is statues, and then there's Song of Circe, and then there's um, uh, On the Composition of Images. Ooh, I mean, I'm super interested in that one. The Song of Circe is good. I've read a translation of that, and it's um, it's short and fun. I think you'll enjoy that one. Save it for yeah, I, I yeah, I have the I have the the Ouroboros Press yeah edition, um, like that, which is why I haven't done that one yet mm-hmm. because I was like, okay, I want to get everything that has not come out as a as a you know previous english translation try mm-hmm. and get as many of those out as possible before i go and do the stuff yeah that right makes sense now if i had known about the um if i had known how boring all of the logic works were <laughs> uh, i probably would have ditched that <laughs> and we would and we would already have the other ones by now but uh-huh. well um, at least you're through it right Right, I'm through that, and uh, so it, I, I think I'll do seven books total. Okay. You know, I don't know. 
I might I might stick statue I might reissue statues and seals as one book. So is statues the really big one? It's a pretty big one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, good luck. You know if we're all thank you. My Alchemical Romance is sponsored by Miskatonic Books. Miskatonic Books is an online bookstore that focuses on rare, limited edition, and custom-made books of the highest quality. They specialize in books on the occult, ceremonial magic, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, Hermeticism, and other topics of interest to you, our listeners. Check them out on the web at miskatonicbooks.com. Hey, you guys. That was a pretty mind-blowing conversation, wasn't it? All right, here's something a little bit more lighthearted. This is the song that I promised you from Nick Arneson's new album. Okay, never mind. This is not a song that you are going to find on Nick Arneson's new album. This is a song that I recorded when he wasn't looking, when I was over at his house helping him set up for one of his live streaming shows the other day. Um... It's called Anus. Uh, he was singing it to his children um, while we were doing the sound check. And uh, I'm including this solely because he has really slacked off on sending me an audio spot to use as an advertisement for his new album, Midlife Crisis, which you can find at nickarnesonmusic.com. Now, his actual album has you know, professional level audio engineering. The topics are much more serious and adult than are in this little uh, ditty. And, uh, you know, just so you know, I recorded this um, using my phone when he wasn't paying attention. So it's not the best audio quality, but it's sure to make you laugh. So remember to check out his album, nickarnesonmusic.com, and um, enjoy. Do that again. much for listening to another episode of my alchemical bromance i've been getting so much good feedback from you guys i've been having so much fun interacting with the community um our sponsorship deal with miskatonic books is ending this month and because of that we are 
going to be funding the podcast through Patreon. Uh, Patreon is a monthly subscription service where you can, I think what we're going to be doing what I'm doing is like for the $1 a month level, you'll get early access to the podcasts. It's probably going to be some other bonuses thrown in there. Uh, it's all on the Arnamancy podcast, uh, Arnamancy Patreon campaign. I will have a link in the show notes and you can go there. It's patreon.com forward slash Arnamancy. You can find My Alchemical Bromance on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Music or Google Podcasts, however they have that set up, or or your favorite podcatcher podcasting app everywhere, or on the web at myalchemicalbromance.com. Now, we need your help to spread the word about My Alchemical Bromance. We've got a lot of really cool episodes coming up, including, of course, the next installment of MabCon, I don't know what we're going to be doing this year, but it's probably going to involve visiting breweries, um, sitting down with uh, with the whole crew and Barley the Witch Dog and just having a good old time, maybe even brewing another beer, uh, definitely talking about all of the strange stuff we've been up to the last year, and that'll probably be coming out in October. So uh, get your friends involved, get them to come and listen to our podcast. And actually, if you want to just get complete strangers to come and listen to our podcast, get onto iTunes, get onto whatever thing you use to listen to podcasts, and give us a review. I don't know that we necessarily deserve five stars, but if you want to give us five stars, I will absolutely give you an astral high five. Um, and then uh, let us know what you think. So, myalchemicalromance.com. Check it out. And we will see you next time.